0: Thank you, Mark. I'd like to cede the rest of my time to have Mark just say more nice things about me. Good night. That was awesome. Thank you so much, church. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Uh, it has been a true blessing, uh, not least of which is, as I joked about in the morning class, this is what you guys call winter. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, I have been, and my wife Yodi, who's sitting right over here, Yolanda, we have been treated just royally and uh, have had a great time. And the Bible studies yesterday, I mean, you know, when you get invited to a place and say, yep, we want you to spend seven hours just delving into the text, you're a little worried that people are going to be snoozing pretty quickly. But man, folks were on fire. They were staying with it. And i, I I couldn't bore them. It was it was tough. I was trying. Uh and so I'm I'm impressed with the response that the McCarthy Park congregation is giving. And I'm excited to have a chance to talk about this topic this morning. The basically we're going to be in the text of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, uh go ahead and turn to those. We're going to put some of the scriptures up on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the uh, the sermon on the mount with me cuz this text means a lot to me personally i i uh, have to tell you that uh, i'm a person who's dedicated the good part of my higher education my my advanced degrees to the question of christian evidences to the question of how do we explain to people what we believe about god and that is very much in the mode of a psychiatrist you know, going into psychiatry because he thinks he's crazy. Uh, I, I, I've I've searched those questions out because I'm a person who, uh, from you know, early teenage years, very riddled with doubts and always had questions and always bugged the fool out of my Bible class teachers and 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 I and I wanted to explore those things very much. And I have to tell you that by the time I got to graduate school in theology, I was really on the edge of losing my faith. I mean, there I was. Training to teach other people about Jesus and the Christian faith, and I myself was asking the most fundamental questions if I even thought it was true. And I want to testify to you that the Sermon on the Mount and the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus saved me. It turned me around. It was a I I I can't I don't have the words to do justice to what this text and the story of the resurrection death burial and resurrection of Jesus meant to me but but I have been turned into a different kind of follower of Christ because of what we have here in Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 and I don't know what it's going to do for you but I know that these words these ideas have tremendous power to make lives differently because it's happened to me and I hope that you'll just give me a few minutes to talk about that Jesus has created a stir when when we kind of get to this point in the gospel he's created a stir he has a huge crowd following him and he sits down and if you notice the whole crowd is there so he's sitting up on a mountain but he looks at his disciples And the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily directed to the crowd that's following Him. The Sermon on the Mount, if you look, is targeted at His disciples. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them. And that's how we begin the Sermon on the Mount. And that's actually one of the keys to understanding what this sermon is about. It is about being a disciple. It is not an evangelistic sermon. It is not a sermon aimed at folks who are out there on the fence wondering whether or not to believe in Jesus. It's not a sermon to try and convert the lost or the skeptics. There are sermons in the Bible that do that kind of thing and they're really good for that. But, but the Sermon on the Mount is interesting because it is aimed at people who've already decided I want to follow God, I want to be pleasing to God, I'm interested in doing that, And and almost every part of the Sermon on the Mount is designed to help you do that better. It is Jesus, as God's anointed king, telling us this is how you be a follower of God. This is how you draw close. To God, He is warning us time and time again, avoid the traps. Avoid the, the things that will derail you. Because Jesus knows, He's seen it before, He knows that it's perfectly possible to spend your entire life in the pew and separated from God. The Sermon on the Mount is about how to go to heaven from the pew. And so he helps us to achieve that higher righteousness. When we relate to each other, we sometimes relate in terms of, I haven't turned this on all that time. Man. Can you hear me now? I apologize. I can hear myself just fine. I don't know what you're complaining about. Sorry about that. It was such a good introduction, too. I'm just sad. For those of you who didn't hear it, it was brilliant. Um, when we relate to each other, we often relate in terms of conflict. Win, lose. I'm going to win. You're going to lose. You're thinking, no, I'm going to win. You're going to lose. We, we fight, and uh, somebody has to, to be defeated. When we think about sports, that's what is going on. A lot of times when we think in business. That's what's going on. And many of our human relationships are defined in terms of somebody's going to be the winner, somebody's going to be the loser. The conflict style of relationship. Oftentimes, we start thinking about God that way. You know? Conflict. God wins only when I lose. I obey God just by kind of getting beat down finally and saying, well, he's going to send me to hell if I don't, so I guess I've got to do this stuff. And sort of, I lose and he wins, or, you know, maybe I can put one over on God and maybe I can just, you know, kind of finesse the rules and come out with a way where I can, I can get away with some stuff and still squeak into heaven, you know, on a technicality or whatever. But it's a conflict mode of thinking about God that kind of bleeds over from the way we think about each other. There's another very common mode of how we deal with each other, and that's the contract mode, the win-win mode. I'm going to I'm going to get something from you, you're going to get something from me. In conflict, we say, my interest served at the expense of your interests. In contract mode, we say, my interest by means of your interest. I'm going to get what I want by means of giving you what you want. We're both going to get something. It's a win-win situation. And again, we start thinking of God in these same terms sometimes. We begin to say, well, you know... Uh, God wants something from me. I want something from God. Surely we can come to some kind of arrangement. Almighty. You know, surely, you know, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to pray. And uh, give me your list and I, I'll, I'll do the list. Or at least uh, my people will get back to you and tell you which parts of the list I'm going to do. And, and, and then you're going to do your part, which is taking me to heaven and so forth. And, and, and we're going to come to some sort of a contract arrangement. And if you think about, I don't have time to talk about this, but if you think about the history of Christianity and actually a lot of the world's religions that have tried to relate to God or gods and so forth, they really revolve around either contract or conflict type of analysis of this situation. And we just kind of get trapped in that mode. And Jesus is here to present something really different. Because contract, conflict kind of relationship. That is how religion dies on the vine. That's how, you, that's how you can spend your life doing all kinds of religious activities. You know, casting out demons and, and, and uh, doing great works and saying Lord, Lord all the time and never actually know God at all. That can happen. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen to you. He says, let's do God's type of relationship which is neither conflict nor contract. It is covenant. It's not my interest at the expense of your interest. It's not my interest by means of serving your interest. It is that relationship which is established where my interests start to merge with your interests. Where you and I, though we start out separate, we start to become one. The highest form of this relationship in human terms, of course, is marriage, although it exists in other forms as well. I was shocked when I got married to find out that though I used to be single and used to just look after myself, I now was stuck with another person, that my happiness now depends on making another person happy over there. And, and, and I can no longer be interest, interested just in my own interest. I have to take her interest into account. And over time, if you don't rebel against that covenant, over time, what happens? What happens to old married couples? Some of them actually start looking like each other. I hope that doesn't happen to you, sweetie. I really do. That would be gross. But, but, but they, they start talking like each other all the time. They start finishing each other's sentences. Uh, They start being able to just almost read each other's minds. It's just weird. They merge. They become, like the Bible says, one. One flesh. That's kind of what a covenant's designed to do. And a covenant with God is designed to do the same thing. I mean, God certainly has some rules He puts in place. God certainly has some rituals that He wants you to do, some things that He wants you to do as a religious person. But the main thing that's happening is as you continue to live day by day, God is sneaking up on you. And He's changing who you are. So that increasingly you start, your interests start resembling His interests. Your interests start merging with His. You start wanting what He wants. You start seeing things the way He sees things. You start desiring in people's lives the same things He wants in people's lives. And, 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 and it happens over time. It's never perfect in this life. But that is what, that's what the essence of religion is. Jesus says, I'm telling you, unless you do better than the Pharisees, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to be higher than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees were awesome at keeping the rules. The Pharisees were awesome at doing the, you know, the acts of worship properly. They were awesome at any kind of rule keeping you want to do, any kind of ritualing you want to do. They were great at all that stuff. They were better than the average people. How can my righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees? It's when I allow God to have his way with me and to change who I am. That, when I let that covenant really do its work. And, and most of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus trying to help us get out of the way of ourselves so that God can change us. So... The first bit we have in uh, the preaching part of the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus begins to say, You've heard it said, but I say to you. About the uh, third of the way through chapter 5. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Anybody who kills is subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Anyway, who says, you fool, will be in danger of the hell of fire. Wow, what's going on? Jesus is saying, look, you can be a very religious person. You can be a person very interested in keeping the rules of God without being interested in God. The real secret is that all the rules God ever gave you, whatever the laws are, and there were laws in the Old Testament, and there are, let's face it, laws now for Christians, rules that God means for us to keep. Whatever the rules are, they are not just rules, they are windows into the character of God. You're not meant to stare at the glass of the window, you're meant to see through it, to the reality behind, which is the character of God. And so for every rule there is, you ask yourself the question, whatever rule-keeping you're trying to do right now, Jesus doesn't say, don't keep the rules. He says, use the rules to get to God. Whatever rules you're trying to keep, you ask yourself the question, how can I obey this in a way that will get me closer to God, that will let the covenant of God do its work in me? So, you know, I can say to myself, By the law of Moses, which commands that I not commit murder, I am a righteous person. Because I have never crossed the line into killing people. Not even that jerk on the highway this morning who cut me off when I clearly had the right of way. Uh, Now, I did swear at him a little bit under my breath, but I didn't commit murder. So I'm a righteous person. Not even my brother-in-law, who is such a... An idiot. I can't believe the things he said last Thanksgiving. And I have thought about the ways I would kill him, I'll have to admit. And I'm kind of wavering between poison and gunshots. But but I never have actually crossed the line into doing the deed. So, as far as the rules are concerned, righteous person. And what does Jesus say? Seriously? Do you know who God is? Do you know what God's like? Do you know what God thinks about your brother-in-law? I mean, he knows he's a jerk too. But, but he loves him. And he wants the best for him. That anonymous person who cut you off loves him too. That girl who messed up your order at the checkout, loves her too. And And if you... Take the rules and say, well, how close can I get to the edge while filling my mind with the opposite of God? Hatred, rage, anger all the time. If you think that you are still righteous, you don't understand what righteousness is. Righteousness is drawing close to God. Same thing for the lust commandment. You've heard it said don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, you lust. You look at a woman for the purpose of lusting. You're already an adulterer. You're already committing adultery in your heart. Jesus is not trying to define a new law where now we can say, well, how long do you have to look before that happens, Jesus? Give me the, you know, say like two seconds? And uh, can, I, can I look at a picture? of a? Girl? I mean, uh, Jesus isn't trying to define a new law. He's saying, look, here's a rule. We know this is a rule God gave. What's God trying to tell us about himself through this? Can you see what God's like through there? If If I say, well, I've never actually strayed from my marriage vows, but boy, I would like to, and I think about it an awful lot. I spend my time meditating on how great it would be to have a little vacation from monogamy. Am I godly? Am I thinking God's thoughts? No, my mind is clearly moving as far away from God as I can manage to while I'm sort of comforting myself that, yeah, yeah, but look, see, I haven't crossed the line. I'm still righteous. And Jesus says, don't play those games with yourself. Don't don't play those religious tricks on yourself. You just trap yourself in endless cycles of, you know, oh, I'm going to do better, but Really, my mind doesn't want to do better, and so I just keep repeating the same failures over and over and over again. And Jesus says, no, use every bit of the law that's given, whatever the laws are, use those as stepping stones to draw closer to God so that you and He every day are becoming more and more like each other. And we could go through all of the things if we had time and, and show how that logic is working. Same thing starts happening in chapter 6. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus says, Be careful. Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by others. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he talks about giving away money. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. And he says, in each case, don't be doing it to be seen by other people. Do it if you have to. Keep it a total secret, so then you'll know it's just between you and God. In each case, that's the the logic of what He is saying. Again, I can spend my life in religious activity. I can burn up energy in doing church work and not be involved with God and not even have God impacting my life. And Jesus says, I don't want you in that religious trap. I don't want you stuck in that religious dead end. I want you broken out of that dead end so that you can actually move into the joy and glory of being in a living, developing relationship with Almighty God. God gives you some rituals. He says, for instance, come to church. Be baptized. Take the Lord's Supper. Sing. Pray. Worship. There are other things that are built into our religion, just like there were things that were built into the Jewish religion. Rituals that keep things fresh. But with every ritual, there's a way to do it in such a way that I can keep God at arm's length. And there's a way to do it where I use it as a stepping stone toward God and letting God change me. In particular, Jesus says, these these religious activities that we engage in, it's very tempting for us to to begin to adjust them in the direction of public opinion. The people around us, we're very concerned about their opinion of us and, and it's very easy for us to let the opinion of others around us begin to take first place. And so Jesus says, make sure that the bulk of your giving is giving that nobody really can give you credit for. Make sure that the bulk of your praying is praying that nobody can give you credit for. Make sure that when you fast, you're not fasting so other people are going to say, Oh my goodness, that's an amazing thing. Fasting like Daniel, that's impressive. You're so pious. Jesus says, I mean, it's okay, I guess, to do those things. It's not harmful. But don't kid yourself that if you're doing it so other people will notice, that that also is going to get you closer to God. He says, you already have your reward. What was the reward you wanted? People to see you and to be impressed with you. What reward did you get? People saw you. They're impressed with you. Do you get anything else? Not really. You shouldn't expect to anyway turns out it's more complicated than that because God's more gracious than that. But, as far as your motivations, you shouldn't expect anything more to happen. That can be a religious dead end. Here's a test to kind of check yourself. How much of your prayer life is prayer life that other people can see you do? If you honestly evaluate yourself and say most of the praying I do is when I'm around other people. Most of the praying I do is when I'm at devotionals or when I'm at worship services or when I'm maybe before meals in my house or at various other times or or family gatherings. That's most of my prayer life. If that starts to be true of you, then Jesus says you may be running down a cul-de-sac for prayer. It may be that your prayer life is going to get dead-ended. And how do you break out of that? He says to spend some closet time with God. Make sure that the bulk of your prayer life is prayer life just between you and God. I don't think Jesus is writing a new law that says, you know, you have to go home now and redesign your house, make sure you've got a prayer closet. Any more than he's saying you have to go and, and make sure that your taxes, you never claim, you know, your contributions to the church. So it's totally a secret. He's not trying to write a new law. He's trying to change, give us new thinking. Use whatever rituals there are, whatever religious activities there are. Use those as stepping stones to draw closer to God, not as ways to keep God at arm's length. He actually wants us to live alive to God throughout our entire lives. Over in the second part of chapter 6, verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and, and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says this life is so fleeting, and the wealth that we care so much about in this life is taken away from us so quickly, please don't make that the measure of your value. Don't invest there. Invest in God. How much is the balance in your portfolio going to matter in five years? Actually, it's going to matter most for me starting about 10 years from now. That's when retirement kicks in. And I care. Maybe you have a different date in mind. Let me ask you another question. How much is the balance in your portfolio going to matter in 50 years? Let me ask you another question. How much is your financial success going to matter in a thousand years? Is there anybody living today who is so wealthy that we're going to care a thousand years from now? Anybody? Let me ask you a question. Name two millionaires From the year 1000 A.D. Anybody? How much is it going to matter 5,000 years from now? How much is it going to matter 10,000 years from now? I actually tell my students, do the one million year test on the things that you're putting your priorities on. How much is what you're concerned about, what you're eating yourself up about, what you're willing to sacrifice yourself or maybe your families or your relationships or your God, how much is that going to matter one million years from now? Is there anything that you can accomplish in this life, any level of success, any level of honor, any level of glory that's going to matter a million years from now? And Jesus says, well, nothing material will do that. But there are things that are treasures in heaven that will be there forever. They'll be there a million years from now and a trillion years from now. And for all eternity, they are treasures in heaven. What are they? Everybody, take a second. Look to your left at the person sitting there. Look to your right at the person sitting there. Now, the pews that you're sitting on, the building that we're in, a million years from now, it's not going to be here. The person sitting to your left and right will be. We are forever. And so what you do to make the person sitting on your left and the person sitting on your right uh, better able to appreciate God in heaven, more likely to be in, with God in heaven, those are your treasures in heaven. They will be there forever. The things you do for the kingdom of God that will last forever, the things you do to bring in lost people to the kingdom of God, The resources you dedicate, whether it's financial or time or energy or intelligence or talent, whatever you put into the activity of God on earth now, those are your treasures in heaven. They will be there for you forever. This life passes away. Jesus says, don't go down that dead end. Put your resources where you know they're always going to be there. Because by doing that, your heart will end up there as well. You want to merge with God? Make sure that your best is being given to God. And it'll happen naturally that you begin to merge with God. He says, don't worry either. I heard a story about a guy who was trying to do the bills and he was just, you know, he just had too much month at the end of his paycheck and he was just fretting and everything. And he finally threw up his hands, his wife was listening, threw up his hands and says, I would pay somebody $1,000 if they would just do my worrying for me. And his wife said, "Really? I'll do that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll take that deal." And he said, "Okay, done." And she said, "Where's my thousand dollars?" And he said, "That's your worry." This passage that we have about worry, therefore I tell you do not worry about your life, what to eat, what to drink, about your body, what you wear. Is life not more than food and so forth? This is Jesus at his most merciful. Remember that Jesus in his God nature at least has seen the whole history of the human race already. So how many families has he seen torn apart? By worries over money. How many children has he seen neglected by worries over money? How many lives has he seen just ripped to shred by people who can't come to peace because no matter how much they get, it's not enough to give them that peace that they are seeking and there's always a little bit more they can get. How much has he seen that drama played out? When he tells us not to worry, it's not because he's stingy and he wants to keep all the stuff for himself. It's because he wants to set you free. He wants you to live a life not going into a dead end, but into abundant living. Living in the peace of God. And he says you're never going to get that peace by chasing security in this life. You're going to get that peace by knowing who God is. Everybody, do this. Take a breath, a really good breath right now. That's awesome. And breathe out. That's nice. Who gave you that air? God did. How long has He been giving you that air? Your entire life, God has been giving you that. Every, every time your heart has been beating since the day you, were, you began beating in your mother's womb, God gave you that. All of y'all, make some air. You've been using up enough of it. Come on. (laughs) All of y'all, make your heart beat. Come on, squint your eyes. You know, beat heart. Do it. God's been doing that for you. And we could... We could spend the rest of today and tomorrow and the rest of the week counting all the other things God's been doing for you every day of your life. Does God... What's the evidence? Does God want to take care of you or not? The evidence is overwhelming. God intends to kind of take care of us. Now The world doesn't give us everything we want. And there are times when we have to go through hardship and suffering. Jesus certainly did and others do because this is a fallen world. But the evidence is still overwhelming God's a giver. God is a giving God. He wants to give us the things that we need. He he plans to take care of us. And so you're not going to find peace by adding more to your stuff. You're only going to find peace by moving into faith in that God. the only place it's going to be found. Jesus says, cut yourself off from this worry. Live your life every day. I mean, we all got to work. We all got to go and kind of do those things. But, but as you go about your daily life, live it alive to God so that ultimately God through Christ can be living in you. That's how you keep your religion alive. That's how you keep it progressing and, and how you ultimately, it will merge into the life that is to come. It will become the life that is to come. One of my favorite news stories of the last several years, I've been telling this lots of places, came out of L.A. It was only, I think, picked up in the local papers. and I just happened to see it on a, some website. Annalise Spray lives out in the suburb of L.A. She has three little chihuahuas and a three-year-old girl named Mackenzie. And one morning, the chihuahuas were going crazy. They were just barking like nuts and and Annalise was still sleeping, and McKinsey got up and left the dogs out to the front yard. And then out on the front yard, they were just going crazy. They were just barking like mad. And, and uh, that finally woke up Annalise, and she got out. They actually have, fortunately, a, the, the way their home was constructed, they have a garage that had been constructed later. They have a window that looks out into the garage, a big plate window. And she, before she went outside in the front, she looked through that window And in their garage was a 100-pound mountain lion. Out in front of the garage were three Chihuahuas. total weight in chihuahua age was nine pounds. (laughs) They were dancing around and they were yapping and barking, and and the mountain lion didn't know what to do. It was trapped in the garage. It was totally confused by these Chihuahuas. Who all they know was, this is our house. What are you doing here? And they were, chihuahuas don't know what size they are. You know, they all, they think they're wolves. Uh, my favorite part of the story is, of course, Annalise is panicked. She calls the police. She calls animal control. This is my favorite part of the story. The police pull up with animal control. The chihuahuas say, this is our house. So, no joke. One chihuahua stays to make sure the mountain lion doesn't get frisky, and the other two chihuahuas peel off to go deal with the police. (laughs) Is that not awesome? I just love that story. Now, nobody ever said chihuahuas are smart. But they had a job to do, and they did it. The best of their ability. Folks, you don't have to be brilliant to follow the sermon on the mount. You don't have to be brilliant for Jesus's promise that the kingdom of God is at hand for that to be true. It's it's in your power to have the kingdom of God right now. To begin to live in the glorious presence of God the Father. To let his reality begin to be active in your life and to begin to shine out through you to the people that are around you. It's You don't have to be smart to do that. You have to do one thing. You have to do one thing. In everything you do, in every prayer you pray, in every Bible scripture you memorize, in every job you do at work, in in all of your life, you seek to draw closer to God. And you will live the life of higher righteousness. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you need prayers, you can come forward and, and, and we have a way to here I understand, to pray for that. If you need help of some other kind or encouragement, you can come forward and tell your need. If you are ready to receive...